scripture reading. I'll be reading from Romans 13, verses 1 through 6. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servant, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to the governing. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, Lynn. Uh, before we pray, uh, just an update on a, on a prayer request this morning. Uh, this was uh, our baby recognition Sunday, and uh, one of um, the, the friends of, uh, of a member of our church uh, had a son, five-year-old son, go into uh, to surgery this morning just as we were doing the baby recognition, and we offered up prayer. The baby did come out of, uh, that small child came out of surgery successfully, uh, there was a, a twist in the intestine that has been able to be straightened out. There, uh, this, this poor little kiddo just has all kinds of complications in his life besides that. And we need to remember Andres uh, Hernandez? Hernandez in our prayer and uh, continue to pray for his parents as well. And so we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 13, all 14 verses tonight, and thinking about what Paul has to say about the government and about being disciples of Jesus uh, and our our uh, our connections, our engagement with government. But before we do that, that's, let's pray one more time. Father, there are, are so many things that, that bless our lives. We, we think of sunshine and we think of the, the rain, the water that, that comes into our life and onto this planet that causes it to to flourish and, and to bud with new life and all of the ways that, that You sustain life, Father, from the food that You give us to, to the air that we breathe, to the tilt of the earth, to the distance from the sun. We're grateful, Father, for Your power and how it's manifested to us in all of these different ways that reminds us that we are not alone, that we have a Father, not a distant, aloof, God, but a Father who is in heaven and who is holy and righteous and loving and compassionate and mercy, forgiving, oh so forgiving of our transgressions and generous in supplying us with Your Spirit in order, Father, for us to become the people and the kind of humans we were created to be from the very beginning. Thank You for the peace and the joy and the vision of the future that, that You have given us. Uh, thank You for this Word, Father, that speaks to us and instructs our minds and helps us to know how to live in, in this world in such a way that, that not only is a blessing to us and people around us, but also blesses Your name. It blesses Your name. 
So as we study this 13th chapter of Romans, what we're asking for in the name of Jesus, Father, is for You to give us eyes that see and ears to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, It's a curious thing, as you know, when families get together for the holidays, that to maintain the peace, they follow one simple rule. Don't talk about what? Religion or politics. It seems that you can get the same results, division, when you mix the two in the same conversation, especially if that conversation happens to be in the the body of Christ, the church. Now think for a moment about the context of this church in Rome. The emperor Claudius has expelled the Jews from Rome uh, around AD 41-42. We read about that in Acts chapter 18. Claudius, by the time that Uh, uh, Paul is getting ready to write this letter. Claudius is gone by A.D. 54. A fellow by the name of Nero is now the emperor. With with Nero, it's going to be the end of the line for the Julio-Claudius emperors. Nero is allowing the Jews to come back into Rome after more than a decade abroad. They're able to pick up their lives. But in the meantime, the Gentiles have been taking care of the church for over a decade. And now the Jews are coming back, and that creates an ethnic issue in the church. That is what we've been looking at primarily in the book of Romans. How do Jews and Gentiles get along in one body? How do they manifest the mystery of God in the one body of Christ in Rome? They can do it only if they understand that God has not rejected Israel. They can do it only if they understand that God has grafted Jews and Gentiles together into the same spiritual family tree. They can only do it if they both understand that they are, by God's mercies, living sacrifices. That is, people who are totally devoted to the will of God. But the problems of differing ethnicity is not the only issue here. There is very possibly the very real and personal issue of politics. Think about the Roman Gentiles and their pride of empire. A a civilized world of sorts. Same language. Uh, uh, There is one language that can be spoken throughout the entire world, although there are many languages. There is one that everyone shares. There are roads that go everywhere. There is a peace that makes it safe to travel those roads everywhere. Rome for all intents and purposes, is the center of the world at that time. And then you have the Jewish Christians whose lives have been disrupted by the Roman authorities over a decade. They come back, but their lives have been disrupted. Their lives in many ways have not been made very pleasant or very easy because of the empire. And so you have two very distinct views that threaten the unity of the church. Now, the same thing is, is very true in lots of churches today. In every church that I've ever been associated with, there has never been a unanimous agreement on which political party was the right one for the country at that time. We happened to live in Brazil at the same time as, as Barry and Sophia during the first democratic presidential election in 29 years. Up to that point, military dictatorship. In our church in Brasilia, the capital, there were members of our church that voted for Lula, who was a part of the, the, the Labor Party, very much a socialist, probably even some communist leanings that scared everybody to death. There were also those who voted for Fernando Collor, who was pro-business, was re- Republicanish. This, this morning uh, I created the word unitedness. Tonight, Republicanish. I don't know if that's a word, but again, you were there when it was born. Later, we were in Kansas. 
And there were Democrats and Republicans in that same church body, along with some Libertarians and a few people, not, not, not a few, actually quite a few, who voted for Ralph Nader. Later we moved to South Texas, same kind of thing. In each of these places, the unity of the church could become a very fragile thing because of political sensitivity. How can you be a Christian and vote for Barack Obama? How can you be a Christian and vote for Mitt Romney? Thus, another form of legalism is born. Jesus plus the right political party. And the church's unity pays the price for that. Now, this is where I think Paul becomes very helpful, though not exhaustively so, on the subject. We have to remember the context here. Remember that Nero is the emperor, but he has been under the tutelage and the influence of Seneca, the philosopher, who has helped him to rule justly and to think straight about the the expansion of Rome and, and, and how to mete out the law. But after the death of Seneca, this is where Nero loses that influence, that good influence in his life, and the wheels, in a manner of speaking, come off the wagon for him personally and for, and for the empire. He no longer has that leveling influence, and you know what eventually happens. Nero is going to blame the Christians for the fire that just about destroyed Rome, and they will be persecuted in cruel ways. Many of them were used, they were lit on fire, and were used to light up his gardens. Even Paul himself is going to die unjustly by beheading in Rome. But that's in the future. That's not when Paul is writing this letter. In the meantime, the church in Rome is basically left alone. So in this context, the church is not troubled by the government trying to manage the church, manage the organization, define and change the doctrine. The church is basically being left alone. And in this context, the church is not being forced to to deny the Messiah. That's going to come later. In this context... There are differing, differing views and, and, and levels of allegiance to the government that threaten to undo what God has accomplished through the gospel. And so what Paul does is give us four insights on Christians and government in that context. He's going to talk about authority. He's going to talk about law. He's going to talk about public life. And he's going to talk about the long run. So God and government, the chapter begins with these words, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Now, this certainly more than implies a relationship between the disciple and the state. When, when we find ourselves in any nation, in any country, we are to be subject to the governing authorities. Jesus taught the same thing in the context of submitting to the government in taxation. Mark chapter 12, verse 17. They think that they've got him. The, the religious leaders are posing a question that they think are going to, it's going to put Jesus in jeopardy. It's going to undo his credibility. It's going to put him in Dutch with the zealots and, and everyone else that wants to see Rome's hobnail boot taken off of the throat of Palestine and of Israel. And so they ask him, should we pay taxes or not to, to, to Rome? And Jesus says, give me a coin. And he shows them the coin. He says, whose image is this? And they go, it's, it's, it's Caesar's. And in Mark 12, verse 17, he says, then you give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, but you give to God what is God's. John Stott identifies four controversial, controversial in the sense that they're much debated, models of relationship between church and state. The first is this, Erastianism. It's, it's uh, named after Thomas Erastus, who lived 1524 to 1583. 
This is where the state controls the church. The church is not able to do anything unless the state gives it permission, gives it sanction to do so. The opposite of that is a theocracy where the church controls the state. A third model of, of government and relationship between church and state is Constantinianism, which uh, comes from the 4th century uh, A.D. Constantine is, is the emperor of Rome. Uh, the church uh, is in favor with the state, and the church begins to accommodate the state in order to retain its favor. And then the last one is partnership. And this is where the church and the state recognize and encourage each other's God-given responsibility in the world. Now, what Paul reminds the Roman Christians is that in, in, in the questions of government is that God is the ultimate authority. God is the ultimate authority. When it comes to submitting to authorities, Christians are to remember four things. First, that there is no authority except what God has established. And if God is the one that is, is establishing authority, then God is the ultimate authority. Think back to what Jesus said to Pilate in John chapter 19 as he's being questioned by Pilate before his crucifixion. He says in John 19 verse 11, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from where? Above. The issue in John 19 is Pilate's misuse of power to condemn Jesus. So there is no authority except what God has established. Number two, the authorities that exist are established by God. God is the one that has established them. Number three, the one who rebels against the authority is ultimately rebelling against God. And then at the end of verse two, those who rebel then bring judgment on themselves. God is the ultimate authority. And one of the reasons for government is found in verse 3. For rulers hold no fear for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Paul knows that that is not universally true. That the government always does the just thing or the right thing. As the miscarriage of justice in the crucifixion of Jesus, Paul would, would know about, as well as Paul's own experiences of local government would prove. But in the main, the reason for the government to be in place is to hold fallen human beings accountable to live in such a way that anarchy does not overcome and, and overwhelm society. You'll remember, um, uh, probably back in the 1980s, I think is when this movie came out, you remember that scene when the little kindergartners run amok without any classroom government in that movie, Kindergarten Cop? I mean, you have this strong power who has absolutely no authority, and all of these little kids, I mean, little kids, up against Arnold Schwarzenegger with the muscles. They, are, they have taken over the place. Now, it's generally held true that poor government is better than complete anarchy, although that can be hard to believe, I know. And this is why Paul adds, for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. Now, the word for servant there is the word for, for deacon, which which uh, is one of the reasons, as an aside, while public servants in the United Kingdom are called ministers. The idea is that they are serving the public. They are deacons, political deacons. It's also why governments are held responsible by God. The Old Testament is full of example after example after example after example of governments, of nations, of the way that they conduct themselves, of their relationship with other human beings, how human beings are treating one another. They are held ultimately responsible by God. And the use of the word communicated to the Roman Christians there is that 
There is a connection between God and the responsibility of these authorities, and they would have picked up on that. Which brings us to Paul's thoughts on the laws of state. If God is the one who is behind the authority, establishing that authority, then disciples are to be law-abiding citizens. The authorities are to execute the laws that define good and evil in the public. Now again, uh, in chapter 12, the themes of good and evil have already been touched upon by Paul in describing the life of a disciple. Disciples, in chapter 12, verse 9, are to hate evil and to cling to good. In verse 17, you're never to repay evil with evil. In verse 21, you're not to be overcome with evil, but you're to overcome evil with good. The local authorities play a part in that as well. These government servants enforce the laws to protect the good and to punish the wrong. If you do right, then you will be commended, Paul says. But if you do wrong, then you have need to be afraid. Why? Verse 4, if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. I remember when my dad gave me a spanking one time and said, I do not bear the belt for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, do not be afraid, Paul writes at the beginning of verse, uh, of, of verse 5, to submit. And he gives a couple of, the, of examples of how you submit. If you owe taxes, then pay taxes. If it's revenue that you owe, then you pay the revenue. If it's respect, then give respect. If it's honor, then you give honor. And the motivation for this, verse 5, matter of conscience. Now, what in the world is he getting at? I mean, what does that mean? Well, I do think it's something significant. There is something bigger than just this robotic obedience to law. Explain. To obey out of fear of punishment can lead to obedience out of self-interest. Obedience out of self-interest is problematic. First, if there is no fear, then there is no obedience which leads to criminal activity. I'm not afraid of the cops. I'm not afraid of the lawyers. I'm not afraid of the judges or the court system. I'm not afraid of anything. I'm, I'm going to do what I want. On the other hand, too much fear can lead to immorality in the sense of, uh, think of, think of the Nuremberg trials. I was only doing what I was commanded to do by the state, by the law. Paul is telling the Christians in Rome that they are to obey the law even when there is no fear of punishment or consequences, but not only because of that, but because of consciousness. We might define conscience as that critical, internal consciousness of values and principles and scruples and truths that we apply to life. Now, Christians understand that obedience to the law is to recognize that God is the ultimate authority. But not only that, Disciples are examples of, of kingdom in public life. Now this part of the text in verses 8 to 10 appears to have Paul hiccuping a little bit theologically and jumping back to what he's been talking about in Romans chapter 12 and how Christians are to live with one another inside of the body of Christ. But I think that we are to understand this in the context that we find it in. There is more to civic life than merely obeying laws. Disciples live a kingdom-driven life in public life as well. If, if political differences in the church do not trump the gospel, then political differences in public life do not trump the possibility of the gospel. So here's the question. Should a member who believes and kind of adheres to one political party 
Not ever attempt to share the gospel with someone in a differing political party, a party with whom they disagree with policy. Is the spread of the gospel trumped by differences of political agenda? Or should Christians hate people who disagree with them? Should Christians hate people who disagree with them? Here Paul says, verse 8, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. We drop down to verse 10. Love does no harm to a what? Neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Sometimes Christians forfeit love when it comes to telling the truth. They just, they just kick it to the curb. I'm, we're going to tell the truth. And we're going to tell it in, in the most powerful, loudest way that we can. But that won't do because the truth can sound harsh. And the truth can become mean-spirited. And the truth can be used as a wedge between people. And sometimes Christians forfeit the truth. And they just love, 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 love. And love is what makes the world go round. But that won't do because it doesn't match reality. The reality that we live in deserves and needs a truth. In 2 John chapter 1 and verse 3, John says something. He says, Grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us. How? In truth and love. Grace and mercy and peace. That is, that is the salvation, the forgiveness, the opportunity for relationship with God, peace with God, the end of alienation because of our sins, the, the reunion with God, the reconciliation with God as Father happens with the, it is with us because of truth and love. And as people representing the gospel, we bring to the table both truth and love. But the world is not going to be a perfect place. And therefore, Paul ends the chapter with disciples having a view of the long run. Disciples understand that this present age does have a shelf life. It is not eternity. It is not forever. It's not the end game. It is the meantime. He says in verse 12, The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. What Paul is helping the, the disciples to recognize is that a time is coming in which God is not going to be represented by a governmental authority, but is going to represent Himself in person. That, that God will present Himself to His people and exist in their midst and they in His midst. He says in verse 11, Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. So, verse 14, you clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and He gives other practical instructions there. But, they, but the point is this is that in the meantime, there are responsibilities that we recognize in, in living in any nation, in any state, with any government, that as, 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 as moral people, we obey those laws. We recognize, though, that sometimes those authorities are not always representative of God. They, they are accountable to God. They have been established by God. But sometimes they misuse their power. In the meantime, we have that long run that recognizes that there is a perfect government run by a perfect king that one day is going to manifest itself in the, in the renewal of all things, in the resurrection. And Paul is saying that is the long view that Christians have. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. 
And we're going to offer an invitation to anyone who has never become a part of the community of Christ, who has never allowed God to become their King, allowed the Lord Jesus to govern their life by giving their life to Him completely, by having faith and trust in what it is that Christ has accomplished in the cross, our sins being forgiven, our debt being paid, so that we can find ourselves not just being forgiven and being cleansed of a guilty conscience, but being adopted into God's family. God's Spirit coming into us to transform us into the kind of people that we were always meant to be. Cliff McCauley had a a great class this morning talking about the, the problem of cheap grace. Cheap grace is where we want the salvation, but we don't want the implications of that salvation in the way that it, it changes the way that we live and changes our taste for, for things in this world and the values and the principles and the vision that we have for the future and for what is good in the world. What it is that God offers is not just the forgiveness, but a completely transformed life that is full of joy and a peace that passes understanding where you are never separated from the love of God, where you, where you know without a shadow of a doubt that God is with you in every moment, that, that every resource that you need to live in this life will be amply supplied through His ample riches. And if that describes you during the singing of this song, come down to the front and talk to these shepherds. They'd love to talk to you about these things. Let's stand and praise God together.